Last Sunday was Reformation Sunday, and as the world yawned 500 years after the celebration of this momentous event, they shouldn't have yawned, they should have paid close attention. Our world would not be so screwed up as it is now if people had paid attention and had not gone astray. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses, 95 things that needed to be discussed and hopefully changed that were wrong with the medieval church. What he ultimately set in motion was something he never expected to do. He just wanted to be a good Roman Catholic monk. He wanted to be a good member of the Augustinian order. He didn't want to wreck the church or split the church. He wanted to reform the church in ways that it did not conform to Scripture. For as he saw as he studied the Bible as a professor of Bible, this is what the Bible teaches teaches, but in so many ways, this is what our church teaches, and they're not the same. Now, in 2000, the year 2000, Time Magazine named Martin Luther as the man of the millennium, because more than anybody else in the last thousand years, what he did in starting the Protestant Reformation changed the world. He didn't set out to start a Protestant Reformation. He set out to be faithful to Scripture, and what God chose to do with his obedience is another question. Let me read an introductory paragraph, and then I'm going to show you Nine reasons. You go, nine, that's a long message. Well, not if each point is kind of short, okay? So uh, Joe said we normally go to 130 or two. Is that right? Uh, no, it's not right. Okay. Uh, so we'll, we'll try to keep it within bounds, and you'll be smiling when we're through. Let me read an introductory paragraph, and then we'll jump in. Remember, our scripture text ended with Paul saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the Romans and the Jews said, you ought to be ashamed of the gospel. What a rinky-dink gospel. Your hero is some dying Jew on a cross in Palestine? Really? That's the best you got? And you're following some dead Jew? Come on. We got better things going in Rome than that. But what appeared to be the vast weakness of God was ultimately the power of God into salvation. For man's greatest need is not social liberation, economic liberation. It's not this or that. It's to be liberated from the wrath to come. For if there was a giant meteor headed for the, the planet and it was going to do great harm to the planet, that wouldn't be as bad as the wrath of God, which God has pronounced upon all disobedience. Every sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world will be punished. Let me repeat that for shock value. Every sin ever committed in the history of the world will be punished. It will either be punished on the unbelieving, un repentant sinner or it was punished on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross no sin ever gets off scot-free no sin ever hires a shyster lawyer at the last minute and gets off every sin will be punished and that's the great need we have who is going to help us to flee from the wrath to come to a place of safety Martin Luther when he found it he said it's like all the bells in heaven went off the angels were singing I couldn't believe I finally saw it in scripture let me read to you a paragraph briefly, and then we'll jump in. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone, and I'll explain what justification by faith alone in Christ alone is, is rightly called the biblical doctrine by which the church stands or falls. If this church loses it, this church will go in the tank. If you keep it, it will stay biblical. It is the basis of the church's standing before God and is the heart of the gospel. It is the foundation of your life as a Christian. It is the biblical warrant for your confident access to, you, to God. How do you know that God even wants to hear you pray? Because we'll see if justification by faith gives you that. Your expectations that your prayers will be answered. Your confidence in seeking the Holy Spirit's fullness for your ministry. Your strength in suffering. 
It undergirds all your expectations of blessing in your daily life, in your witness, in your worship, and finally in facing death. My first point, I will explain justification by faith alone and Christ alone and say this. It's the basis of your confidence in your full pardon and complete forgiveness. It's the basis of your confidence that you've been fully pardoned and you have full forgiveness. How do you know God isn't still kind of semi-torqued by some of the stuff you keep on doing since your supposed conversion? How do you know that God's still not kind of sort of mad at you? Colossians 2, 13 and 14. He has forgiven all your sins, having wiped out the certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. A certificate of debt which was posted outside of your cell door if you happened to be a criminal and the debt of what you owed to society. You committed this crime. The civil courts say you have to spend six years in prison. That's your debt to society. When you finish, they pull down the writ, take a stamp, to die, paid in full. Your debt to society was paid. The same way um, if you owed money to a bank or a money lender for some reason, he would give you a writ when you were finally through. It would say, to die, paid in full. You don't owe anything anymore. All of the debt of all of your sins was paid for by Christ on the cross. Even better, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Then there's no condemnation for you. What's really sad is there are people sitting in churches all across America and the world today who are not counting on the righteousness of Christ. They're counting on their own righteousness. In in the late 1970s, there was a man in New York City who became infamous. His name was David Berkowitz, and he became infamous because he became the son of Sam. And he was a killer who, I think, shot and killed nine people over the summer. Uh, I think it was 77 or 78. Recently, at least in the Dallas area where I live, there was a couple of specials, a 30th anniversary of that or 40th anniversary of that. And it showed some of the things he did and the the paralyzing effect it had on New York City. And they later caught this guy who said his neighbor's dog told him what to do. But then after a while he said, no, I think it was Satan and my neighbor's dog telling me what to do. Well, he was certifiably whack, whacked, and they put him in a, a prison and a prison, hospi- prison hospital. And he came out of some of his goofiness, but he's never going to see the light of day. He was given so many life sentences, he'll never be out on parole. But he started going to church, and he started hearing about a gospel of a God who saves sinners. Not people who are mean in Sunday school and reach across and pinch somebody else. Oh, you're a terrible person. But people who do dastardly things, people who have thought and done awful things, God saves sinners. Is Christ a great enough Savior that he could save me from the wicked things that I've done, the people I've hurt? He was given grace and faith to believe that Christ could save someone like him. So he became a Christian in the 1980s and is the chaplain's assistant. Has no hope of getting out. It doesn't get him extra cigarettes. He doesn't smoke. But prisoners do things for all kinds of reasons. And You know, you you do something nice and they'll give you favors. He doesn't take those favors. He's just staying close to Christ. That God would have given his son for such a wicked man like him. Now, again, here's the bad part. There's all kinds of people in churches who've never murdered anybody. Oh, maybe in their hearts they've hated a few, but they've never murdered anybody. But they're resting on their own supposed righteousness and the things they haven't done like other people. 
How do people do things like that? Oh, I can't believe she would have done that. Self-righteous people who are clueless about their own depravity and think their so-called righteousness are going to get them to heaven. And David Berkowitz is going to be in heaven and the righteousness of Christ, and these other people aren't. And to me, that's a great tragedy. Whether or not a sinner can be made right with God, fully forgiven, and counted righteous for Christ's sake, is not based upon the number or the kind of sins that a person commits, but it's based upon Christ. Is he perfect God? Is he perfect man? Did he have a perfect atonement? Did he accomplish what the Father sent him to do? What was it that the Father said to him? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If Jesus hadn't pleased the Father, the Father would have never sent the Spirit to raise him from the dead. Christ being raised from the dead, Romans 1 says, is proof of our justification. God accepted Jesus' payment. And Christ is so great in his person that if there had been a thousand worlds full of sinners and there had been people in every one of those worlds who came to believe in Christ, he could have saved them all. So great is his worth. You can know that you have full pardon and complete forgiveness of your sins because you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. He took all of your sins upon himself, and he gave you his righteousness, which transitions into my second point. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone makes the believing sinner as righteous as Jesus Christ is to the Father. I'm going to be saying some stuff this morning, and I'm sure your pastor has told you all these things, so uh, I'm not trying to tell you anything new, but it may hit you in some new ways, so I'm warning you. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Please memorize this verse. Teach this verse to your kids. Meditate on this verse. I'll quote it from the NIV. For, For God made him who knew no sin. God made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin. When in the world did Jesus become sin? On the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. It's almost like he became sin incarnate. For every sin of every one of his people, Christ was accounted guilty. He became the ultimate lawbreaker, and he was punished for the sins of his people. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that, you know, you go to college, you get a degree in English, you've got to learn something. Purpose clause, that introduces a purpose clause. What's the purpose? And Paul says that we, me, Paul, you Corinthians, you know, the, the sleaziest people of the first century of the people of Corinth, if you wanted to go off the deep end in the first century, you'd say, did you hear about Steve? He Corinthianized. That wasn't a compliment. That meant you went off the deep end of depravity. Me, Paul, who, who supervised the killing of Christians, who liked hurting Christians, who liked using Jesus' name as a curse word, God would save me and you Corinthians. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we, me, Paul, you Corinthians, might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the great exchange. This is the great genius of justification by faith. God declares you just or righteous based upon the work of Christ, not on anything you've done or contributed or haven't done. You receive Christ's righteousness as your gift for trusting in Christ, and and your sins go to Christ instead. You go, well, that wasn't a very good swap for Christ. Well, in one sense, no, it wasn't. But it was the swap of a lifetime for you, if that's true of you. If you're believing Christ stood in your stead, if you believe that Christ was crucified for you and your sins, then all of this is true for you. We have no righteousness to commend us to the infinitely righteous God. 
and we have the debt of our innumerable sins. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, there's two versions, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And the Luke's version says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Is that something you want to take to the bank? Uh, I got a Bible verse, and you have to let me out of my loan here. No, it's not talking about finances. It's talking about the debt that we owe to one another. I am obligated by God to treat you a certain way. I'm to treat my neighbor, to love my neighbor as I already love myself. No, you don't have to go back to school and learn to love yourself. Trust me, you already love yourself. That hokum of the last 25 years in some state school systems where you have to learn to love yourself before you can love others. And I'm still working on that, so I'll get back to you. No, the Bible assumes you already love yourself. It says, with the same care and concern you love yourself, that's how you're to treat other people. That's a debt I owe to other people. And I owe God a debt, too. What is it? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course, and your neighbor is yourself. All my heart, soul, mind, and strength, 24-7, 365. I owe God everything. I owe him my love, my attention, my devotion. Some of you boys and girls who, and I know there's probably some people here who aren't yet believers. I didn't become a Christian until I was almost 21, so I'm not being impatient with you. But let me tell you. I wasn't depressed or lonely or suicidal or a drunk or a druggie or anything. I was just lost. But one of the things that characterized my lostness and characterizes, I suspect, some of your lostness is the way that you express your sin is not in rebellion. You probably don't have a fist fight with your parents before you come to church or some gross thing like that. But you're probably like me. You just don't care. Who cares? I mean, yeah, my parents talked about God, and they talked about God in church, and once in a while I have twinges of conscience, but it's really not that important. Who cares? Really? There is a God, and he has all these attributes, and he's great and glorious, and he sent his son, and you're so wonderful and so super supreme that he's not worthy of your attention. You'd rather play with your toy tractor or your bicycle or get a new car than have any intersection with God could there be that your mind is a little bit twisted and your value system is twisted with it and God's supremely not worthy of your attention? Come on now, think about that. What's wrong with you that you can just kiss off God? I suspect there's something in you what the Bible calls sin and you have an allergy to God and a distaste for God and you don't want anything to do with God. But guess what? God saves people even like that, even like me. I wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for me. In this great exchange, the sin of the believing sinner is counted to Christ and his life of perfect righteousness. Doesn't the New Testament make a deal about he never sinned? Didn't Old Half Testament sacrifices have to be perfect? You can't bring some lame, lame, diseased animal and say, here you go, priest, that's for my sins. They wouldn't accept it. In the same way, Jesus had to be a perfect sacrifice. But more than that, his life of perfect obedience and always obeying the Father and always pleasing the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Wouldn't you love to hear the Father say that over you? Well, in a sense, he does because of Christ. But that's what the Father did say to Christ. Everything you do, and read John's Gospel. John, and John, he pulls aside the curtain and says, let's gaze into eternity past let Christ tell you about some of the things that was going on that was going on between he and the Father in the eternity past. Jesus says, I always obey what the Father tells me. What the, what the Father planned for me, this is what I do. I always obey his commandments. 24-7, 365, 
Jesus loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what's counted to you as a believing sinner, as a new righteousness, as Luther called an alien righteousness. Not aliens, he wasn't that foolish, but an alien righteousness and someone from outside this planet who has a perfect righteousness that he can give to a believing sinner. When Martin Luther was asked by a Roman cleric, I think it was a cardinal, what he would put in the place of good works, indulgences, relics, pilgrimages, praying to Mary, masses for the dead, and all that stuff. What are you going to put in their place, Mr. Luther? And Luther looked at him and said, Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ is everything that you need to stand before the Father and to be loved and accepted and welcomed into heaven, then all the other rigmarole you don't need. And in fact, if you're trusting in the rigmarole, then you don't understand who Christ is and what he's done. In the early 20th century, it's arguable that the greatest Protestant in America was a professor at Princeton Seminary named J. Gresham Machen, professor of New Testament, a great defender of the biblical and historic faith. And he was drummed out of his liberal northern denomination because of his stand for the truth. And he started Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He went to Bismarck, North Dakota to help a struggling church there, and he went with a bad cold. It was 1936. Penicillin was not discovered till 1937. He came down with pneumonia. That was a death sentence. So he laid there for several weeks, slowly dying. And boys and girls, before there were all the modern communications things, you had to send telegrams. And so he would send telegrams back to his right-hand man, Professor John Murray, for example. And he would say things like, isn't the Reformed faith grand? Before the foundation of the world, God the Father and God the Son, in consultation together and with the Holy Spirit, planned to save a people for his honor and glory. Out of all the lost people on the planet, he's going to save such a great number that no man can count from every tribe and tongue and people group on the face of the planet. Isn't the Reformed faith grand? Well, you get right up to the end of his life, and he only has the breath to issue one final telegram. Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. Stop. No hope without it. Now, what is the active obedience of Christ? Theologians discern Christ's work having two parts. His so-called passive obedience, that's when he hung on the cross and took it. He passively took what was meted out to him. He was passively obedient. But his active obedience is his life of obeying the Father 24-7, 365. What Machen is saying is, I'm not trusting in my accomplishments on my deathbed. I'm not looking at my awards. I'm not looking at my degrees. I'm not looking at teaching at Princeton and Westminster. I'm not looking at being you know, the great defender of, of the Protestant faith. If it were up to my righteousness, I'd be doomed. Thank God for the righteousness of Christ. That's my hope of glory. Third, justification by faith alone and Christ alone gives the believing sinner peace with God the Father. I didn't pray much before I was a Christian because God made me feel uncomfortable. I mean, he wasn't my best buddy, and I knew I was guilty. And how many people hang out with judges who are guilty criminals? Not too many. Not too many criminals have cops as best friends. You just feel uncomfortable because you feel guilty. But the New Testament says when Christ wipes away all of your sins, you now have peace with God. He's no longer your judge, but your father, a loving father. 
Romans 5.1. Therefore, based upon what I've just been telling you about justification by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we tend to limit peace in English to a, to a word that means hostilities are over. The war is over. We have peace with Japan. We have peace with, you name the war. But that's not the biblical word for peace. The biblical word for peace is much bigger. It's not only cessation of hostilities. God says, I want to promote and bless every facet of your life. The entire totality of your life, I will now bless. It's not that I'm no longer out to get you. I'm not going to send the death angel to take you out. It's not that kind of cessation of hostility. I am totally for you, and I want to bless every aspect of your life. The sinner's debt has been paid. We have Christ's perfect righteousness. The guilt and shame are removed. I remember one night in in college, my senior year, I'd been a Christian a year and a half. I was walking home from an evening class. And I remember for months, I just walked on kind of air because I couldn't believe that God could save someone like me. And I was walking home from campus this night, not thinking about it, I don't think. But, you know, if you ever lived in the Midwest, it gets cold in the wintertime. And you can't wait for the spring to come. Now, in Southern California, where I've lived, or in Texas, where I now live, or Atlanta, you can't wait for the fall to come because it's so beastly hot the rest of the year. And finally, the temperature drops, the humidity drops, life is nice. Well, I was walking home from a nighttime class. There was a warm breeze. The trees were full of leaves. There was a million stars in the sky. And it dawned on me, the God who made all this is my father. He's my father. No, I had a good relationship with my earthly father, so that didn't make me twinge, because some of you had bad relationships with your earthly father, and that's not a cozy thought. You need to work on that. Because if your father doesn't meet the standards of a good father, it's not because God is defective, it's that your father was defective. You don't measure God by earthly fathers. You measure earthly fathers by God. Draw up close to your heavenly father. He is the best father you could ever have. But I sensed that that night. No, he wasn't at war with me. I wasn't at war with him. I wasn't avoiding him. I wasn't passively aggressive and saying, why don't you go bother somebody else? But rather, he was my father and he was looking out for me and my life could only go upward. Martin Luther said, you will never find true peace until you find it and keep it in this, that Jesus Christ takes all your sins upon himself and bestows all his righteousness upon you. You are as righteous as Jesus is in the eyes of the Father. Now, you might, I don't know if you put your seatbelt on before we begin, but this is going to sound like fairy tale language, but it's not. It's the gospel. The Father regards you exactly the way he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves his elect exactly the way he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no sins clamoring against you. They've all been atoned for. You have Christ's perfect righteousness. He's for you. And that's not fairy tale language. That's the gospel. Luther said, daily I must seek to work at this task of apprehending Christ. Apprehending is different from comprehending. Comprehending is getting my brain around this. Apprehending is grabbing a hold of Christ. He says, old habits from before make it a necessity for for me because for so many years I only considered him a judge. This view became like an old, bad, rotten tree that had sunk its roots deep into me. But in thinking this way, I lose Christ, my Savior and Comforter. He had to preach Christ to himself every day because your default mode is, how am I doing? 
you, if you're like everybody else, your performance is what you think God views you. Bad day? God doesn't love me very much today. Good day? I'm sure Jesus is singing for me victory in Jesus. Your performance is not the basis of your standing before God. It's Jesus' performance. Did he love the Father 24-7, 365? Did he love his neighbor as himself? That's counted to you as your righteousness, not your supposed accumulated righteousness. I'd like to spend more time, but I need to move on. Number four, justification by faith alone in Christ alone gives the believer bold and constant access to God the Father. You know, with heads of states, it's very hard to get to them. If you call up the White House and say, uh, ask Donald if I can come over and just say hi. And who are you, sir? Well, I'm Joe Blow from Kokomo, and I think that he'd like to see me. We'll get back to you. Don't hold your breath. Has anybody here ever visited the White House on the basis of personal invitation? Has anybody here called up the White House and said, I'd like to come visit? They go, yeah, come on. Let the tape reflect nobody raised their hand. Well, let's, let's ramp that up higher. How do I know that God's excited about me coming into his presence? Now, you could be really kind of arrogant and full of yourself and go, well, because I'm me and anybody would want to spend time with me. And that's a, that's a possibility if you're self-deceived, but it's not a real good plan for the future. Sometimes we're timid and uncertain in approaching God. This has not been a good week. In fact, the last couple months have been pretty poor. I'm still struggling with my pet sins. So not being sure of our forgiveness and lacking a righteousness of my own, I vacillate in coming to the Father. Yeah, I know I've had a terrible week, but I don't think God wants to hear me. Romans 5.2, I've read 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.2 says, having been justified by faith, we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I'm placing my trust in Christ. I'm really believing that Christ atoned for all of my sins. I'm really trusting that Christ's righteousness is given to me. And that's the basis for me confidently coming to the Father. It's based upon faith in what God has revealed he will accept and what he's granted. You sing the Charles Wesley hymn, the great hymn, And Can It Be? He says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Why did Charles Wesley suddenly become so bold? Was he, a, as the Brits would say, a cheeky person? Was he outgoing and pushy and just was too stupid to know he should have, didn't, should have kept his place? No. He understood what the scripture says. God wants you to trust in the finished work of his son, plus nothing as the basis of your total Christian life and your access to him. For many centuries, too many professing Christians have wrongly made their current performance, you call that your sanctification, the basis of your standing before God rather than fully the fully justifying work of Christ alone. Now, I'm going to say something about the Roman Catholic Church. And if you grew up Roman Catholic or your parents are Roman Catholic, I'm not attacking your mother. I'm not saying your aunt's ugly. I'm not talking about individuals in the church. I'm talking about official doctrine. So when I'm disagreeing with them, I'm not attacking personages. I'm talking doctrine. But the Roman Church, you base your understanding of salvation on your performance because what does Christ do in the Roman system? 
He makes this major down payment. Look at him hanging on the cross here. Doesn't that just get you? And look at how sacrificial his down payment was. But it's only a down payment. And in case you haven't thought about it, do you know how down payments work? You can put down a sacrificial down payment or a small down payment, but you still need to keep making the payments to make it work. I know this is a spiritual group, and probably none of you have ever heard a repo man, what a repo man is. But he works for um, finance companies, and he repossesses things that, were, that you purchase, but you don't finish making payments on. And uh, if you're a teenager and thinking, a little bit longer and I can buy a car. Your parents go, right, and you need to pay for the insurance. Um, and so you buy the car. Boy, finances are kind of tricky. And you call from work one day and said, Dad, uh, <clears throat> when I went into the racetrack gas station to get some, something to drink, I came out, my vehicle's gone. I think it's been stolen. I had a man in my church call. Pastor, my, my big brand multi-expensive SUV has been, been stolen. I've just called the cops and keep me informed. I'd like to help as I can. Well, I didn't hear from him, so I called him three days later. Whatever happened with your big expensive SUV? Oh, that. Oh, that. Well, I was behind on my payments, and they sent the repo man, and he was following me, and he had an extra set of keys. And when I went into the racetrack gas station, gas station he got into my car and drove off with it, and I'm having the dickens of a time getting my personal stuff out of what had been my vehicle. But you need to make all the payments. And the Roman system is, Christ makes this major down payment, but it doesn't get anybody saved. You must add your own good works. Jesus is congruent merit and your condign merit, and the two go together, and that will get you saved. Okay, think about it. How many of you have ever been on a treadmill or seen a treadmill? Know what a treadmill is? Okay, you know, I've been on one as long as two hours, and it's like, well, that's a long time, but usually an hour. Would you like to live on a treadmill the rest of your life? Seriously. Every day you must be making payments and mailing them in because your good works added to Christ is what gets you saved. Luther went in to confess his sins to the father confessor, and the guy would roll his eyes and say, what now, Martin? Well, father, forgive me, I've sinned. What did you do now? Well, last night at dinner, we had peas, and I was really hungry, and Brother Ralph over here, he had 42 peas, and I only had 14, and I was really hungry, and I was coveting his peas. Really? I mean, is that the best you got? Why don't you go out and do something really bad so you have something to confess? And Luther was a better theologian than his father confessor. He goes, you don't get our theology, do you? I can't afford that. I must have perfect good works to add to Christ's good works to get me saved. And I don't want to face the wrath to come. I want to be saved. And if somebody's going to be saved by being a good monk, by monkery, that's going to be me. So the father said, Te absolvo, and told him to do certain things. The point is, is that Luther understood that in that system, Christ doesn't save anybody. He only makes hard workers who are willing to tear out their coupons and mail in their payments of good works the rest of their lives get to go to purgatory. Because according to the Council of Trent, right after the Reformation, nobody, not even the Pope, can know he's going to heaven. The best you can shoot for is extended time in purgatory, and maybe somebody will get you off later. Parachurch organizations today, like some groups during the Reformation, they make how you're doing the basis of your relationship with God. 
Are you witnessing enough? Are you having a quiet time every single day and never miss a day? Do you memorize verses every day? Do you all the, do all the things that the parachurch group you're involved with tells you to do? A woman in my church became so spiritually depressed, she didn't want to come to church anymore. And she said, for over six months, I asked my husband every Sunday, do I have to go? And he goes, yes, you have to go. And she said, no matter what you preached on, what I heard was, you're not doing enough. Now, that's not what I was preaching on. You can go back and look at my notes. But that's what she heard. And she was a melancholy perfectionist by nature. And they're always looking in their navel and scrutinizing what's going on in there. And lint, dirt, innards, but no glances at Christ. Well, one day, she was at church with her kids. And we had a large library. And she went in to look at the, to kind of stand there while her kids picked out books. And she was looking at the adult books. And the poor, doubting Christian drawn to Christ... She pulls it out, doesn't read the book, doesn't have the time, doesn't read the whole forward, reads two pages. <sighs> Hooker says, the Puritan author says, the reason why some Christians fall into doubt is they spend the majority of time looking at themselves, not looking at Christ, not looking at his finished work, at best looking in their own navels, so to speak. You don't see glory and transformation looking in your own navel. You are a sinner saved by grace. Look at the source of that grace. Look at Jesus Christ. I have access to the Father. I have the Father's favor, not because of my weak, but because of who Christ is. Fifth, justification by faith alone in Christ alone gives you safety and confidence in spiritual warfare. I believe in spiritual warfare. I'm not a charismatic. I don't have bad theology. The pie demon made me eat four pieces of pie last night, and that's why. No, it wasn't the pie demon, buddy. It was... The sin of gluttony. Or when in doubt, cast it out. No. In the Bible, the, the scripture verses dealing with sin outnumber scripture verses dealing with, with Satan about uh, 10 to 1, 600 to 60. But you don't count verses as a means of doing theology. But listen to the Apostle Paul talk about what justification by faith in Christ alone has to do with your safety in times of spiritual warfare. And Ephesians 6 is the longest passage in the Bible on spiritual warfare because the Ephesian Christians, going back to Acts 19, you can read Luke's travelogue where Paul and, it wasn't Barnabas at this time, it must have been Silas, came there and these people had been heavily involved in the occult. How heavily involved in the occult? The whole town must have been into it because they came and then when they repented, they threw all their tarot cards and Ouija boards and all the paraphernalia of occult and it has this massive pile, and they burned it. And Luke estimated, well, it looked to be about 50,000 days' wages. That's a lot of junk. They were into the occult. So they should expect some spiritual warfare. Paul says, Ephesians 6.11, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. If God let him, he could take you or me out today. Read Job chapter 1 and 2. He could take you out today if, if he was given permission. Thankfully, he doesn't. But we're to wear the whole armor of God. Verse 14, he says, stand, meaning stand in your place, hold your place, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, Roman soldiers, like soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan, wore breastplates. Our soldiers wear a Kevlar vest, and some of them have ceramic plates here, so if you take a shot from a heavy round, the vest, if the vest doesn't do it, the plate may help. 
The point is all of your vital organs are between your groin and your shoulders and you want a breastplate to protect you from a shot. Well, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, do you think that's your righteousness or Christ? If it was my righteousness, it would be like holding up a dime. Whoa, because I don't have anything to protect me from shots of the devil. When he shoots his fiery darts at the believer, the covering breastplate of righteousness extinguishes the accusations. Christ has done it all. Your entire life, up until your deathbed, go back and read the stories of some people on their deathbeds. The devil goes, hey, remember what happened in 93? Remember that thing that happened that you never told your wife about, you never told your husband about, you never told your parents about? I have not forgotten, and it's right here in living color. Would you like to review it? Or, what, are you the dumbest Christian or just the most disobedient? Why do you keep doing the same sins all the time? So what do you do? What do you point to? Well, I tried really hard. That's nothing. He will try to wound you on your deathbed. He will try to make you give up. He will try to make you be a bad example on your deathbed. When I became the senior pastor of a church, I took my kids aside. My son was 10, my daughter was 7, and I said, Kids, do you know what a playground bully is? You know. Well, Satan's the ultimate playground bully. He will pick on you guys to attack me. He would try to hurt you to make me feel bad, to get me out of the pastorate. Oh, we know what playground bullies are. I said, well, he would attack little kids. He will attack anybody in this room. What am I going to do when I'm under attack? When the devil has a little hit parade of all your greatest sins. One day I was driving from Atlanta to South Carolina for a conference I was involved with, and I got in my little car, and I drive out the driveway, and boom, it's like, a giant helicopter landed on my roof, and the devil was just after me the whole three-hour drive. And I didn't bring my best sword. In fact, I had a little rubber knife that I was trying to sword fight with the devil with, and it wasn't doing any good because I wasn't looking at the finished work of Christ. I was trying to basically say, well, I'm not that bad, and I could have been worse, and, you know, all the crummy excuses we come up with. Went over there, had dinner with my kids who were in college there, went to my meetings. The attack lifted during the meetings. As soon as I left the meetings, the attack came back until I fell asleep much later, and then in the morning it came back again, had lunch with my kids after some meetings. I was spared during the meetings. As soon as I got in the car to drive home, three hours back, had the same thing. That Saturday night, getting ready for the Lord's Day, had the same attack, and I wasn't making any progress. Sunday morning, still there. I had a three-minute drive to church from where I lived. I get to a place on Chapel Lane where I look left and go right. There's never any traffic. It's a dead end, but... Oh, Lord. Father, would you bless these people for Christ's sake today? Would you bless me as the pastor, the one who will lead the service, who will preach, who will pray? Who will... Would you bless me for Christ's sake? Everything the devil said is probably true and more, but I'm not, that's not me anymore. My sins have been atoned for. I have Christ's righteousness. Would you bless these people for Christ's sake, not for my sake? Boom, it lifted, didn't come back. I had fallen into the trap of thinking that my righteousness was the basis of what we could expect for blessing and goodness in a church. Number six, justification by faith alone and Christ alone. 
Justification by faith alone in Christ alone assures you of heaven. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I hope I am. How do you mean hope? Guess, hope, pray, cross your fingers kind of hope? The Council of Trent, written after the Reformation, the Roman Church said, any person who says they know they're going to heaven is anathema under the curse of God. If you said, as a faithful member of the Roman Church, I know I'm going to heaven. It says you can know it, 1 John 5, 11 to 12. You can know that you have eternal life and you're going to heaven. If you say that, you're anathema. You're under the curse of God. But let's listen to what the Bible says. Romans chapter 5. We read chapter 1, first part of verse 2, but let's read the end of verse 2. Having been justified by faith, we rejoice. You know what rejoice means? Yay. In hope of the glory of God. Now, again, the Bible word for hope is not the cultural word for hope. Is it going to rain tomorrow? I hope so. We need the rain. Oh, is that a certainty? No. What is it? Well, I just got to, I'd like it to. I have no idea if it will work out. Hope is not the weak term in the Bible. It is in the culture. Hope in the Bible is an augmented word stronger than faith. Faith means I'm trusting God and his promise. Hope is I'm expecting him to answer his promise, to fulfill his promise. Faith is I believe God and hope stands up on its tiptoes to look up over the top of the hill for the answer to come. It's a stronger word than faith. We rejoice in hope in anticipation of the glory to come. I believe I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I'm cocky? No, because I have Christ. And you should be able to say the same thing if you have Christ. I'm going to heaven not on my coattails, not on the basis of supposed obedience and stuff I've done. I'm going to heaven on the coattails of Christ on the basis of what he has accomplished. Remaining sin in the believer and the ongoing attacks of the devil sometimes make believers lose their confidence. And so much of man-centered teaching today only adds to their misery by putting the burden on you to clean up your life. It's been estimated that 95% of the pulpits in America on a given Sunday morning, all their preaching is do better, try harder. They're teaching morality. They don't teach the finished work of Christ. They teach morality. This last spring for our General Assembly, we went to coastal Georgia, and the barrier islands there, and one of them is a very lush and beautiful place to go where we met. And John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield all preached at this one spot under this magnificent 600-year-old live oak tree, a massive tree. And they built a church there later called Christ Church that the Methodist Church built for the Wesley brothers. And outside the church, they had little track racks where you could pull sample sermons that they preached there. And I go, well, I was a church history major, and they weren't converted when they were in Georgia. That wasn't until they got home to England. So what were they saying in their preaching? Try harder? Do better? One, two, one, two. It's kind of like having your own personal gym teacher crowding you all the time saying, you need to do better. You need to do better. Again, folks, they weren't preaching the gospel. They were preaching moralism. That's not the gospel. Listen to Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That was the day when God called my or your name, and we kind of woke up from our stupor and said, I'm a sinner, and I need to do something about my life. I need to look to Christ. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Okay, we're talking about that this morning. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense, done deal. He doesn't say, well, they might make it, or maybe they'll make it. He says, they're as good as in heaven because Christ has purchased all this for us. I have the righteousness of Christ, not of my doing. I am going to heaven. Christ purchased that for me. He is my entree to heaven. He is my guarantee of heaven. And if you're a believer, he's your guarantee of heaven. If you don't have Christ, you have no guarantee of heaven. John Calvin said in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 11, Paragraph 11, God justifies believers so completely that they may boldly appear in heaven as being invested with the very purity of Christ. Well, that's it. Opposites attract. My wife, I'm a theoretical, idealist, romantic. I could imagine things how they might be. My wife is a down-to-earth, practical woman, and I might be waxing eloquent on the sofa about theoretical things or theology, and she'll go, yeah, okay, that's fine. One of us needs to go to the dump tomorrow. Oh, yes, we live in a fallen world. We need to go to the dump. Well, Martin Luther's wife, Katie Luther, is a great saint, and I, I think she's just, read any book you can, ladies, about Katie Luther. She's worthy of emulating. But on her deathbed, a practice that began at the Reformation and continues in some denominations, they would ask you on your deathbed, how are you doing? Who are you trusting? And Katie Luther was asked on her deathbed what she was trusting. Did she expect to wake up in heaven or wake up in hell? She said, no, I'm going to heaven. I am clinging to Christ like a burr to a topcoat. Now, only a mother can appreciate this. Have you ever had a pair of wool slacks or a wool top coat or a pair of jeans, and you get a hitchhiker or a cocklebur or some burr in it? It's the devil to get that thing out of there. You hardly knew it was there, but it's tougher to get out than you think. She goes, I'm skimming through all the theology right now. I'm just saying, I'm clinging to Christ. He is my entree to heaven. Number seven, justification by faith alone in Christ alone gives the believer assurance of God's favor when facing suffering, trials, and death. Nothing undermines a believer's good sense than coming through a great trial. Does God really love me? Why would he make me go through this? This is the hardest thing I've ever had to endure in my life. You lie in the bed, you cry into your pillow, you try to exercise faith, yea, though he slain me, yet will I trust in him. But it's tough, it's hard. The devil, like the mayor of Chicago, said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Just tells you something about my politics. Anyway, the devil says, well, we won't let this go to waste. you got a pretty crummy God if this is how he treats his friends. Why don't you just curse God and die? Job's wife had it right. Just curse God and die, and he'll zap you, and you can get it over with. Why do you want to go through this hardship? He's not a very loving father, is he? He's not a very warm and fuzzy savior, is he? You doubt God's loving acceptance of you. You think, well, maybe he didn't do all the punishment on Christ. Maybe this is some kind of punishment for my sins. He chastens rebellious believers. There are no juvenile delinquents, so to speak, in his family, but he doesn't punish them in the sense Christ paid for all of your sins. Let me give an illustration. In Georgia, we have lots of trees. In fact, it was once said that a squirrel could go from the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River and never touch the ground. That's hard to imagine if you've been some places back east, out west, you kind of go, I'd just like to see a tree. But in Georgia, you've got nothing but trees. 
And so, and because in the metropolitan areas, they have burning permits and limits, and so you have to wait till October to burn. And so I had my huge pile. It was 10 feet wide, 10 feet tall, and 20 feet long. And just to make sure it went up in a blaze of glory, I threw some tires up there. I know. Ecology people will stone me after this. But anyway, I was young and naive then, not mature like I am now. Anyway, so I'm burning this huge pile. Started at 9 o'clock in the morning. Boys and girls at 4 or 5 in the afternoon. It was gone. The whole thing just disappeared. Just a little layer of white ash on the ground. Now somebody said, I'm going to go walk across those white ashes that used to be this huge bonfire. And a smarter person, I hope, would stop you and say, no, you don't want to do that. Why? Because there's some hot coals in there that you can't see. They're still covered with white ash. The fire is not completely out. There's still some hot coals there. It'll burn through a flip-flop. It will burn your little foot if you step on it. And that's how many of you view what Christ did for your sins. Most of them are atoned for, but there's still some hot spots out there, and God's not really keen on some of the aspects of my life, and I just have to be careful because there's still some hot spots. That's not true. There are no hot spots in God's condemning our sins on Christ. His atonement was full and complete. It's a done deal. Paul asks us to think in Romans 8 about our suffering in relation to the work of Christ. Romans 8 is about suffering, beginning in verse 18 through 23. It's the whole world's groaning right now, waiting for God to finish his plan of redemption. The last elect person is brought in. God brings the new heavens and the new earth without sin. All the misery is over with. There's suffering. And Paul ties our understanding of how to face suffering with the finished work of Christ. One of my favorite verses, I hope it's one of yours. You know, us sinners need to learn the important verses. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son. What does that mean? To spare something means you can have the cherubim and you can have the seraphim, but you may not have my son. This is my eternal son. You may not have him. I'm sparing him. You can have everything else. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, for us sinners. He says, now think, think. Don't just fall on the ground in a fetal position because you're going through a hard time. Think, if he gave his son for you when you only deserve wrath, is he going to give you a bum deal now that you're his blood-bought children at the expense of his son? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not only freely give us all things? Think. Christ is the basis of your acceptance. You're as beloved as Christ is to the Father. Nothing can separate the justified sinner from God's love. And that's how the chapter ends. Read Romans 8, the last 15 or 20 verses. Puritan pastor and author David Dixon was on his deathbed. He was such a good um, student of the scriptures that his works are still in print. Banner of Truth publishes several of David Dixon's volumes. Perhaps your pastor has a couple of them. Dixon said on his deathbed, I've taken all my good deeds and I've thrown them into a pile. And I've taken all my sins and thrown them into a pile. And I've fled from both of them only to Jesus Christ. And I find sweet solace there. It's not my sins and it's not my good works. It's Christ. Number eight. Now I'm just touching on the highlights of these points, but I could have made more points than nine. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone teaches the believer to glory in Christ alone. 
at the end of the day, what should Joe and I glory in? Well, you know, we were, we were pastors, and uh, we were pretty good preachers, and we counseled and helped people, and uh, we were Baptist preachers, and we were Reformed Baptist preachers. Whoop-de-doo. And Joe and I would be seriously deceived and half crazy to think that those are somehow meritorious things. We should glory in Jesus Christ and him alone. Pride and self-righteousness still lurk in the believer's heart. We're fallen creatures. Sin has not been totally eradicated. In fact, I remember watching this situation where, you know, when you come to see the doctrines of grace, it's, it's really stunning. Before the beginning of time, God chose to save a miserable sinner like me. And he covenanted with his son, and they, he sent his son, and his son does these things and goes back to heaven, and they send the Holy Spirit, and he makes me get it and care and regenerates re, 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 um, me and all that. Wow, a cosmic salvation. You lay in bed at night and you want to pinch yourself. <laughs> Man, if, if this isn't a fairy tale, this must be the gospel because this is awesome. Well, you're thinking about that. But because of remaining sin, this is what can happen. All this stuff. And God did it for me. It's still all about me. And Christ did all these things for me. And that's just so smarmy and yucky. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' treatment of Habakkuk. And I was going through the worst two years of my professional life. It was horrible. And I had to really work all day long while I was awake to keep my mind in the right place. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was talking about the terrible conditions facing the Israelites in the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk prays for a revival. Things are nasty in Israel. We need a revival. God says, I hear your prayer. I'm sending the Scythians. They're going to destroy Israel. Um, maybe you didn't hear, maybe I didn't speak up, but I was asking for a revival. He says, I heard you. I'm sending the Scythians. They're going to destroy Israel. That's not what I prayed for. This looks humongously terrible. Lloyd-Jones is going on and discussing it and does a wonderful job. From Fear to Faith is the name of the book. Three chapters. But he said something that stuck me to the wall. He said, you know, at the end of the day, God has a cosmic and eternal plan and thank God, it includes you. It includes me. But it's not about you, and it's not about me. I'm included in this cosmic plan, but I'm not the star of it. It's not all focused on me. God's taking very good care of me. It says that I'm written on the palms of Christ's hands, so I'm not going anywhere in his mind. But it's not ultimately about me. But our remaining sin can be such a black hole. You know, black holes are these things in space that are supposed to suck everything into them. And remaining sin can be like a black hole in our hearts and suck even Christ and all that he is into the black hole of selfishness. If you've been a Christian six weeks or 60 years, the only righteousness that you have or will ever have is the righteousness of Christ. The only righteousness that Joe and I, your pastor and I, have is the righteousness of Christ. Pastors do not do works of super irrigation, as the Roman church said, where you know, Joe and I have so many accomplished good works here that we're going to share a few with you all who are lesser saints. You think we've started drinking or something really bad if you heard that? No. It's the righteousness of Christ is all the righteousness you'll ever have. Paul said, if anyone else thinks he should have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. But whatever things were gained to me, and he listed a whole bunch, these I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things loss 
for the excellency and knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, and count them but rubbish. King James used to say dung. J.I. Packer says, what normal person nostalgically sits around and thinks about dung? Good point. I count them all dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from keeping the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That's my glory. That's what I'm counting on. I'm, yes, I'm an apostle. Yes, I'm a teacher. Yes, I've been through many things. But at the end of the day, my glory is not what I've done. My glory is Christ. John Calvin replied to Roman Catholic Cardinal Sadoletto, who was trying to work out a deal between the Reformers and the Catholic Church. And Calvin calls his bluff and says, Whenever the knowledge of justification by faith alone and Christ alone is removed, the glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion is functionally abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Justification by faith alone is the believer's glory. Who I am and where I'm going is solely based on Christ. And I can rejoice in that. I can relax, not that I'm not obedient, but at the end of the day, it's not dependent on me, it's dependent on Christ. I found a quote by Luther the other day, and it was a great rebuke. What is it about your own miserable works and your own doings that you think you could please God more than the life and sacrifice of his own son? Final point, I'm done. Justification by faith alone and Christ alone is the message that God the Holy Spirit is pleased to bless in every revival. Every time that God sent a revival, there's been a resurrection of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and people come to see it's what Christ did, not what I do, that makes me right with God that makes people sing and go to the foreign mission fields and glory in Christ. In South Africa, they changed regimes in 1994. And prior to that, like the British broadcasting system in England, they had government TV. And before the evening news, they would have a half hour of religious programming. And the man who was the editor of that show was an evangelical Christian. And he only scheduled the best preachers to preach before the evening news. That would be encouraging, wouldn't it? You turn on NBC and... Here's, some, here's Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching. You turn on CBS, and here's whoever you like. And Well, they discovered that whenever someone preached on justification by faith alone and Christ alone, the response is just <laughs> shot to the roof. They, people don't want to hear about try harder, do better. They want to hear a message of hope. They want to hear the gospel. When the Great Awakening began in New England, Jonathan Edwards was preaching on justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Well, I've gone past my time, and have I gone past my time? Probably. But Joe's still smiling, so we should close in prayer. Father, I've said stuff, and I've told these folks, and they've heard me say, this isn't fairy tale stuff, this is the gospel. I've asked some who think there's nothing about Christ that should make them interested. That was a sign of their great sinfulness that they could block out the glory of such a wonderful person and be, absorbed, and be absorbed with playing with their toys or their Xbox or their car or their whatever it was that was their great interest and they had no interest for Christ. Lord, would you love these people enough to convict them of their sinfulness and their depravity and that there's a disease in their hearts which is blocking their take on reality and that if, unless this disease is is fixed, they will die in their sins. Have mercy upon them and convict them of their sins and of the righteousness to Christ, of Christ and the judgment to come. 
for the believers here who are trusting in Christ, Lord, would you help them to move beyond a sporadic trust in Christ to, to a regular trust in Christ, to a daily trust in Christ, that he is their entree to heaven, he is their confidence, he is their glory and their joy. Father, please make their hearts to sing over your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.